The war in Ukraine now. U.S. President Joe Biden spoke with Ukraine's president this morning, once again vowing to defend NATO territory while confirming the U.S. will not fight a war against Russia. This is what he told reporters at the White House today. We will not fight a war against Russia in Ukraine. Direct confrontation between NATO and Russia is World War III. It's, of course, hard to watch as Roscoe reigns terror down on parts of Ukraine, especially civilian areas, hospitals. They've also started striking new stuff, airfields in the West, an industrial city in the East, Dnipropetrovsk. And and indiscriminate attacks, as I said, on civilians continue. And there are calls for a no-fly zone over the skies to protect Ukraine. This is what the shelling has sounded like of late. And this is being recorded by someone in their home. So are we doing enough to help Ukraine? Joining me now is retired Major General David Fraser. He led NATO forces in southern Afghanistan, including during Operation Medusa back in 2006. And he's a former board member of the Conference of Defense Associations Institute. Thank you for your time tonight. And good to be with you. I guess just from, from a military perspective, your assessment now of the first two weeks and a bit uh, of this invasion and, and what, and you know, how you would see it just from a strategic point of view, because we talked about, we talked a lot about how seem, things seem to have gone wrong for Russia, but how true is that? Well, I, I would say after two weeks, uh, the Russian campaign has sputtered poorly on a number of different reasons. They politically completely underestimated the will of the Ukrainian people led by uh, Zelensky They overestimated the capability of the Russian army, which has failed to do anything of note uh, in the first two weeks. Uh, They completely underestimated the impact on the West, which has brought NATO back together, the West together. And they've completely underestimated what would happen economically to their country. So in two weeks, we have seen something that nobody in history has seen. And uh, that is truly quite remarkable. Good news for the Ukrainians who put up a spirited defense. Bad news for the Russians. But this is the beginning of week three. And unfortunately, we're starting to see the Russians learning from their mistakes and starting to uh, actually uh, do what they perhaps should have done at the beginning of this war. And what would that be, Major General Fraser? Well, the Russians have pulled a, a, a page out of their old playbook, which is to attack cities and uh, surround them, which they continue to do, but they have yet to take any city. The insurgency that's left behind will be with them for a very long time. But now they're starting to go after Kiev to try to stop uh, Zelensky talking or push him out. They are now starting to attack uh, airfields and uh, going after the uh, cities in the west of Ukraine, which is probably trying to design to stop the resupply that's funneling into a few of the Ukrainian uh, defense. And uh, they're becoming a lot more bloody in their application of force, which they were actually reserved at the beginning and doing, unfortunately, targeting uh, things like hospitals like they did yesterday and what appears that they've done again today in Kharkiv. I guess the frustration, I suppose, or at least the shock for those of us who are not you know, overly familiar with the rules and the way NATO works diplomatically is the idea that while we're doing a lot to provide the Ukrainian army with the sorts of weapons they need, um, that we are still in a situation where we're basically not able to intervene. 
it, it will frustrate an awful lot of people. But, and President Biden said it today, any Americans uh, fighting any Russian would be the beginning and the commencement of World War III. And nobody wants that. I mean, we've got over 2 million refugees now all throughout Europe. Uh, if we got into a, a, a European war, that's, you know, 2 million could turn into 20 million. And the other thing that is most dangerous is the threat that Putin has, has, has put upon the West. And is that is any intervention would result in cataclysmic ca consequences. And you can read into that nuclear and you know, let's go back to something that was in the height of the Cold War, mutual assured destruction. Once you fire one nuke, where does it end? Nobody wins in that scenario. What do you make of, of now reports, at least from uh, Russia, and this is sort of a normal tactic of theirs, to to accuse the other side of planning chemical weapons attacks? Do you, do you feel like there's a fear that this will escalate into something that we've seen in other parts of the world? Well, again, Putin has been true to every threat he has made. And so for the last couple of days, he's been, you know, promoting this false narrative that Ukraine and the West have got these chemical weapons and he's trying to set it up so that he can use his own, which is completely absurd. But, you know, let's look at the playbook of Russia and they've used it in Syria. They've used it elsewhere around the world. And so uh, that is a, a threat that we have to take seriously. However, Historically, is when they've done such absolutely, you know, inhuman things, the U.S. has actually replied. So I think if, if, if Putin does that, he's going to get an awful big surprise, of, you know, because I don't think the United States will stand by and let that happen. And the, the words from the president, they were about as close to a, a, a counter threat back to Putin as, you know, you better keep your uh, saber uh, uh, you know, sheathed on that regards because do not do anything um, more than what you're doing. And we don't like that either. You spent a lot of time planning military strategy. Is Putin really trying to draw NATO into a war or is he simply trying to have, take as much of Ukraine as he can while using this this existential threat against against anyone else coming in to help them? I think Putin, quite frankly, is just trying to take Ukraine. And um, he would probably want to take Moldova. If he could have, he would have taken the Baltic states, but he can't because they're NATO members today. And the threats that he's made to the West is just so that he can do what he needs to do, because let's face it, what the Russian army has demonstrated is they can't, they're having a hard enough time just taking Ukraine. They have no capability to take anything else, um, which they have shown in the last two weeks. So I think that is actually encouraging from the from NATO's point of view, but we can't, you know, rest on our laurels. But it does appear that this is all he's looking at doing. It does appear haphazard how it started off, and there's, you know, whether or not it was planned or it was, you know, hastily engaged. But it doesn't appear that he's got any, notwithstanding what his desires are, he doesn't have the capability of doing more than what he's just doing now. Do you think allies, I mean, I know there's been calls, obviously, for a no-fly zone. That has been turned down. Um, there was this idea of providing uh, MiGs from Poland via the U.S. That's also not not going to happen, apparently. Have we been doing enough, do you think, to try and make sure Ukraine has what it needs to defend itself? You know, I think we, we're using every tool that we have in our toolbox. Uh, you, we can argue in hindsight, maybe we should have used the tools sooner to uh, to try to 
uh, achieve the, the pressure on Putin and, and the leadership in Russia to, to disengage. But politically, economically, and militarily, uh, economically has been our most useful tools on curbing uh, the Russian economy and the people and getting them to realize that this is a, a really poorly thought out uh, concept by their leader. Militarily, we have done everything other than engaging World War III by you know, doing a no-fly zone or engaging the Russians themselves, and nobody wants that. So, um, and people who criticize it don't come up with any other idea other than going to war. And so I, I look at the Western nations and the leadership and saying, on balance, they've probably done as much as they can, maybe not as much initially, but what they have done has been effective. David Fraser, thank you so much for your insight tonight. I appreciate it. Ben, it's my pleasure. Thank you. A little later, we were speaking, um, an email back from uh, from David Fraser today was mentioning that war can be like water on a table. Once you spill it, you never know where it's going to go. And I think that was a really apt analogy about what sort of threat the threat of war really is, what sort of risks political leaders and military leaders are weighing right now when it comes to how do you defend Ukraine and not engage directly with Russia. It is certainly a debate that is raging now because of just the anger and the frustration over watching innocent Ukrainians be targeted indiscriminately in their homes, in the places where they live, children, women, the elderly, by the Russian military. Coming up, why isn't China putting pressure on Russia to stop this war? That's next. Well, it's hard to say which country could broker some sort of deal between Russia and Ukraine if there's a deal to be brokered, but perhaps none has more leverage over Russia than China. But that hasn't happened. Instead, China's premier today, Li Keqiang, has called the situation in Ukraine, quote, grave, but is refusing to criticize Russia, refusing to refer to its actions in Ukraine as a war or an invasion, and media there pretty much towing Moscow's line about the attack. So why won't China step into, into the middle of this war? With answers, perhaps, joining me now is Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Ben. Um, uh, I'm not sure I will have answers. Um, I have opinions. <laughs> when it comes to China, Absolutely. it's so complex and opaque. Uh, definitive answers are hard to come by. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess the, the one answer, I spoke to you bef just as this war was beginning. Two weeks later, yes. what do you make of how China's responded to this so far? Well, well, I think that China, a couple of things, they had anticipated, I think, a short campaign. I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that they had advanced notice that it was going to be as ambitious as it was for a couple of reasons. They didn't evacuate the nationals in a, in a sprightly fashion as they usually do. Uh, their press spokesman was saying, that, China, that Russia wouldn't bomb Ukrainian cities as the bombs were falling there. Uh, so I think they've had to scramble a bit, um, taken aback perhaps by how aggressive Putin's attacks have been and how extensive. Uh, they get nervous, China. They're a very conservative foreign policy generally. And the idea of uh, a quick war like that with the risk of it growing even larger and with big economic impacts, some, affect, some will affect them as well, I think has made them nervous. So there's been a bit of backpedaling, certainly not a balance between uh, between positions of Russia and Ukraine, but a few uh, small gestures that show that they perhaps are not delighted uh, with the way things are going and what and the impacts on them. They have such big 
economic ties with the EU, specifically the US as well. We know that's a bit strained. When they look at this unfolding, where's the advantage in not condemning Russia? Well, I think they, um, I think the Russian relationship is very important to them, particularly at a time of energy shortages. Um, Russia can keep those pipelines full. Uh, if they had more pipelines, China could probably also divert some of the oil, reduce the oil they're buying from the Middle East and take more from Russia. I think it's a question of what China would sometimes call all-weather friend, is a term they sometimes use for Pakistan. And for, um, but I think that relationship has been pushed further, um, and particularly as Putin is now being sanctioned and Russia is, in effect, in a, a semi-isolation from much of the rest of the world, uh, it has some advantages for China as well. I think Russia, a weakened Russia, will be more likely to provide sophisticated military technologies. Uh, and it's um, and as well, their resources uh, can compensate for some of the things that China would normally buy from Ukraine, for example, where China makes huge purchases normally of agricultural products. So I think on balance, it's a negative for China. But um, attacking Russia... Uh, an autocratic country like themselves, authoritarian country like their own, I think is uh, is not in their style, uh, particularly uh, given that the opposition and criticism of Ukraine, which seems, uh, of Russia rather, it seems universal, but it's really concentrated in Western countries. Um, support in much of the third world is much more limited. When China sees the reaction from NATO and allies to what's happened in Ukraine, does it change its calculus at all, or at least does it change its approach at all, or its its, its calculations at all when it comes to Taiwan? Taiwan is that issue looming in the background. I believe that's one of the issues that um, made China somewhat more reluctant than they would might normally have been to be critical of Russian actions. Russian claims regarding Taiwan are not obviously regarding Ukraine are really not at all based, of course, in popular sentiment in Ukraine, just the opposite, except in some regions on the border in Russia. Uh, they're rather um, nostalgic, historic claims to Ukraine being an integral part of Russia, an important sub-region of Russia. China has the same kind of views of Taiwan, where also sentiment has run strongly against China for decades now, and where, but where China has historic claims uh, that it wishes to pursue and is pursuing, although not yet with, with military force. I think that some of those parallels may also have been a factor in China's reluctance to go after Russia. And I noticed in the Chinese initial comments on the events, this complex historical situation, language came to the fore. And I think, I, I believe I can see some of that flowing from their own historical claims vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Do you think the unity that we've seen amongst allies, the European Union and the U.S. specifically and the U.K., uh, has has given China any pause for concern? About, because for a while it looked like things were very divided post-Brexit during the Trump administration. Uh, now we see a unified West. Do you think China's concerned at all about what that could mean for them? I think they are concerned, and in a negative sense, very much so. Um, for a start, China has been working assiduously not maybe not having given up on the United States, but accepting that they're in for the long haul of intense rivalry with the United States. But China's been working very hard in several ways. Now, we believe that, um, I, mean, I, I believe that the efforts to court the, some of the Eastern European countries, particularly countries like Hungary, 
and Poland to some extent, and previously Ukraine, uh, were part of a, particularly those who are EU members, was part of a strategy to weaken the EU and to make EU consensus on foreign policy issues very difficult. And that has been evident in some of the EU policies towards China, which are all sort of on again, on again, off again, pro-engagement, reluctance about engagement. But now, those plans, I think, are in ruins. The, the Belt and Road Initiative, the only way to get Belt and Road routes by land to Western Europe and, cent- and Central Europe go through Russia and then through either Ukraine or Belarus. That's a dead letter now. That, that, that plan is dead for the seeable future. So I think it's a big setback. I did notice today that Chinese Foreign Minister has been speaking with um, uh, Western European countries. And I think that Gordon, still remains I'm part of I'm running out of time. Just a last word to you. Sure. Well, I think that um, we're still seeing evolving China policy. Mediation is out of the question for the time being. It'll continue to change. Gordon Holden, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Take care. 911.